As from being my friend, you may know that I like unintentionally say very inappropriate things like quite often and it's very embarrassing. Um, <laughs> okay. Maybe you didn't News know that. to me. Go ahead. I guess because well, I say really outlandish things that nothing you say. Well, it's like not on purpose. Yeah. Like I'll say something that sounds like super oh, inappropriate. Oh, I get what you mean. But I think you're also it's a little like sensitive accidental. to that. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe it's just, like, I've noticed yeah. a lot being around Evan because he'll, like, <laughs> laugh at me. Because I feel like I'm a rather serious person, mm-hmm. so I'll, like, say something that is just, like, 100% serious, and he'll just be, like, cracking up, and I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> um, anyway, so this morning, Evan was in the bathroom. He had just taken a shower, and I really had to pee. So I was like, Evan, you have to get out of the shower. Like, I have a meeting I have to jump onto in a few minutes, like let's go let's go let's go and he's like oh i'm drying off it'll just be like a little while and i'm like oh but that doesn't make my penis go away i said penis <laughs> like in my mind i was saying p-e-e dash n-e-s-s um i'm humiliated okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. So this week, we are doing Black Widows? Black Widows again. Mm -hmm. Throwback to our first episode. Yeah, I feel like we've done a few of these. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure it's come up. Uh, But my case ended up being very similar to... Good old Jill Coy. Coit. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, that's... I am i don't know what your case is at all, so I have no frame no, of reference. No, it's going to surprise you. So, Although you, yeah. you have to go first, right? Yes. So, um, yeah. So we're doing Black Widows, people who... Or women who kill their spouses, their partners, lover, whatever. Um, the apples of their eye, I guess. This week, I am doing Betty Broderick. So, born Elizabeth. And I really like the spelling of her. It's like Elizabeth with an S. I like that better than Elizabeth with a Z because I think Zs look harsh. But I get that. (laughs) um, So, born Elizabeth and Biseglia. Oh, wait. Wasn't was this one recommended by anyone or no? uh, I don't think so. Or is it just on our list? Never mind. Sorry. I'm so sorry. So, born Elizabeth Ann Biseglia, and it's an Italian last name, and I might be saying it wrong. I'm sorry. I have no frame of reference for Italian. 
Um, so she was born in 1947. Um, Betty Broderick was raised in a large, strict Roman Catholic family in Bronxville, New York. Do you know where Bronxville is? I don't know where anything is. <laughs> and so Betty's mother and father expected all six of their children to conform to their expectations. And so a lot of that was just falling in line with, a you know, traditional Roman Catholic kind of beliefs about um, the family structure, you know, patriarchy rules, uh, the role of men and women and things like that. And so according to Betty, her parents trained her to be a housewife since the day she was born. She recalled the message that was essentially drilled into her from birth. Go to Catholic schools, be careful with dating until you find a Catholic man, support him while he works, be blessed in your later years with beautiful grandchildren. Um, And soon after she graduated from high school in 1965, Betty met the man that she would later marry, Dan Broderick. Dan was everything that that Betty had been trained to look for, a Catholic man from a large Catholic family. And as fate would have it, they even met at a Catholic university. (laughs) I think. Perfect. (laughs) So they met at Notre Dame. Um, and so by April of 1969, the two had married in a perfectly Catholic ceremony. Um, I'm emphasizing all of the Catholic things because I too was raised Catholic and I like it. (laughs) Um, wow. Way to show your bias. No, I mean. I actually have a Catholic related question for you in my story, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Oh, by the time the couple got back from their honeymoon, Betty was already pregnant. Um, And so their first daughter, Kim, was born the following year in 1970, um, followed by four other children. Lee, born in 71. That's a a daughter. Daniel, born in 76. Rhett, born in 79. And a third son who passed away four days after being born. After their first child was born, Dan finished medical school And soon after he earned his MD, Dan decided that he wanted to be both a doctor and a lawyer and and informed his wife that he would be enrolling at Harvard Law School. This meant that as Dan pursued more schooling, contrary to what she was raised to believe her life would look like, Betty was not only the primary caretaker of her children, um, but despite the student loans that Dan took out, she was also primarily responsible for financially supporting the family. What's the point of being a doctor lawyer? Wish I knew. I mean, I guess you could do... Maybe he wants to be in medical law? (laughs) I suppose, but it just seems like just two things that you wouldn't want to do right up one after another yeah when dan finished law school he received a job offer from a san diego california law firm so um he and the entire family moved across the country betty worked part-time selling products like avon but she was mostly a stay-at-home mom in 1982 dan hired linda kolkenna to be his legal assistant legal legal oh no (laughs) right what happens when you hire a 21 year old as your legal assistant um and so linda was a 21 year old former flight attendant and the following year betty had her suspicions that dan was cheating on her and having an ongoing affair with linda 
when Betty confronted her husband about what she suspected, he followed the cheater's golden rule. Deny, deny, deny. Um, And so, however... Mm. Um, However, in 1985, Dan made the decision to move out of the family home. Betty was not happy with this. For whatever reason, um, after that happened, Betty, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but she, like, started dropping off the children, like, one by one on his, like, doorstep. Wait, did they, like, break up or did he? He moved out. Like, he was like, I'm done with you. Like, okay. For some reason in my mind, I was like, oh, he just wants his own space like but they're still together <laughs> um if wrong. my husband moves out like see you later buddy <laughs> like divorce papers will be there in the morning um just kidding we'll talk about it uh, <laughs> 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 but yeah no so she so yeah they broke up and now he uh, yeah now she was like dropping each of the kids off at his doorstep one by one and so my i didn't like look too much more into that to see if she ever like explained her thinking on that but my thought is it was like i'm reminding you like we have kids like hello um maybe yeah maybe he didn't like say anything to her after she dropped the first one off so she's like how many more can i unload onto you before you talk to me about this yeah but for whatever reason and i don't understand the legal system at this time um this action so betty deciding to leave them on um his doorstep resulted in dan getting custody of the children um which i don't i don't understand unless maybe she was dropping them off at like 2 a.m um but i didn't see that noted anywhere i mean maybe it was just the argument like oh she intentionally forfeited her children if she didn't make any plans to come pick them back up but that seems again that's just but yeah um and so finally though dan was ready to admit that he was in fact having an affair with linda this led to a very long and hostile divorce their case broderick versus broderick became an infamous divorce case in the united states because of the unprecedented issue involving women who worked and put their husbands through graduate and professional school and now their husbands were like the financial like breadwinners um because you know they never really had or in this in uh betty's case she didn't really have like a career career she was just Mm -hmm. doing like part-time jobs now he's a doctor lawyer supporting her and so it's like how how does that work what is owed um and so dan was a pretty well well known local lawyer and he was even president of the san diego bar association And so according to Betty, this and Dan in general made it hard for her to find an attorney that was willing to represent her in the divorce. Um, So obviously he had like connections in San Diego. Yeah. And so Betty was also convinced that Dan's influence in the area and the legal world, I guess, in um, San Diego helped in him getting sole custody of their children. It also she also believed that that's the reason that he was just like pretty much unilaterally unilaterally allowed to sell their family home up from under her um Mm. and she was also cheated out of um the any alimony that she was appropriately due um even in this time period you would expect like i put you through school you are now like the financial like breadwinner for this family 
and you're leaving me, but now I get no alimony. And they, they didn't have like a prenup or anything. And so it is. That's so unfair. Yeah, it's unfair. And I think it's uncommon that she wouldn't get that, especially in the case of like in the fact that she put him through school. Like, you know, she kind of is owed a little bit of salary, in my opinion. Um, and so after four years of a brutal legal battle, the divorce was finalized in 1989. Betty was understandably heartbroken. And she, so, yeah, Betty was understandably heartbroken. She had followed the path that her parents had laid out for her. She married a Catholic man who she supported while he pursued his passions. She had Catholic babies with whom she <laughs> raised to the best of her abilities. And but despite her best efforts, Dan had betrayed her and from her perspective humiliated her and basically destroyed her um like through these legal proceedings and icing on the cake he took her kids like away completely insane yeah and so just thinking about the emotional kind of side of what all of these different acts could have done to somebody like emotionally um like I feel for her I don't I don't condone what will obviously happen in the Black Widow um, episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't condone that, but I do think that we have a responsibility to, like, not push people over the edge. Right. It sounds like the system really let her down. Yeah. Um, And so following the end of the divorce, Betty seemed to be controlled by her anger, becoming more and more irrational, volatile, and sometimes violent. Dan received hundreds of voicemail messages from Betty, most of which were angry and profane. He ignored her. Dan got several restraining orders against Betty. She ignored them. I think the lack of response from Dan and just like a lack of acknowledgement to her and like whatever she was going through, I think that kind of fueled her fire a little bit because it Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of these things that she's just like digging and digging and digging and like wanting him to like respond so that she can get whatever it is that she's looking for in terms of like that conversation or that emotional like reaction and so I think the fact that he (laughs) the fact that he was like ignoring her not responding putting up restraining orders I think that kind of drove her even more mad and again I'm not I, I do want to say, so I'm reading this book now that this totally relates to. It's called The Gift of Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this guy who has like this agency where he helps people who are like being stalked and things like that. Um, and so he actually talks about this. Obviously, no one is responsible for, you know, violence against them. But it talks about how to prevent um, cases because obviously there are so many cases where people get restraining orders mm-hmm. and what in my mind it's like what can a restraining order really do in the case of someone being like physically violent to the point of like killing someone that's not going to stop them so it just talks about um kind of the psychological um effects that a restraining order might have of you know what it might look like to respond to threatening letters threatening calls and it really talks about how to diffuse those situations so if that's something that anyone is interested in i would recommend checking that book out but it sounds like in this situation that um you know every step they took obviously you know again it doesn't excuse what she did but it just really threw fuel into the fire yeah that's exactly my my thoughts and so her behavior just escalated from calls and like vandalizing the house that dan now lived in with their four children um 
to like she drove her car through the front door of Dan's house while her children were in the house. And so oh my God, like you can just kind of see how like the de-evolution, I guess. Um, well, she lost everything. Yeah. She didn't have anything else to there was like no hope it seemed like for her. There was no reason not to mm-hmm. cause serious harm to someone. Yeah. And I also think, like, in this case, if you think about just, like, the beginning, like, why their marriage ended, because her husband was having an affair. He left her. And, like, at no point did she get any vindication. Like, there was no, like, nothing. It just kept getting worse and worse for her. And so I'm just thinking, like, the emotional toll that that already took just by the end of the divorce. Absolutely. And then all of these other things, I... You know, obviously she is responsible for her own behavior, but um, I, empath- I, I I sympathize, I guess, um, mm-hmm. with what that what that emotional experience must have been like for her, because it couldn't have been me. <laughs> and so, adding fuel to the fire, just months after the divorce, Dan married Linda in April of 1889. Um, and so, Linda was so worried about how Betty would react based on her behavior up to, up until then that she suggested that Dan wear a bulletproof vest on their wedding day. Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, but Dan and Linda's wedding came and went without any interruption from Betty. And But according to Betty, though, after the wedding, Linda began taunting her by sending her facial cream and weight loss treatment advertisements. Um, I don't know if that's true. If she true. actually did that, that's so messed up. Yeah. Like, if she really did that, that's cruel. That's You already stole this woman's husband. You have her kids. You have the life that she, like, was, told, like, led to believe that this, like, if she followed all these rules, this is what she would get. Um... And so for you to do that, like, what it, like, what's wrong with you? Also, yeah, if you're so concerned that you need your husband to be wearing a bulletproof vest, that is absolutely the last thing that you should be doing. Yeah. Um, but also, it could also just have been, you know, Betty's story. Like, so, yeah, her coming up with it in her mind. Yeah. And so if that's the case, not nice, Betty. Um, and so seven months after the wedding, on November 5th, 1989, Betty drove to Dan and Linda's home at around 5 a.m. Betty had previously previously stolen a key from Betty had previously stolen a key to their home from one of their daughters. Linda and Dan were both asleep in their bed. Just one month before Linda and Dan had gotten married, uh, Betty had purchased a revolver, which is a gun. Um, and she brought it as she entered the home that day. At 5.30 a.m., Betty shot both Dan and Linda while they slept. Linda was hit by two of the shots that Betty fired, one landing in her chest, the other landing, the other hitting her head. Linda died instantly. Dan was reaching for the phone when he was hit in the chest by one of Betty's bullets. Um, d- uh, Dan didn't die instantly. But in total, five shots were fired, and Dan and Linda were 44 and 28 at the time of their deaths. Betty turned herself into the police and never denied what she had done that day. Betty's only defense at the time was that the murders were not premeditated. She wanted people to believe that when she broke into the house at 5 a.m. with a gun that she purchased eight months prior, she had no intentions of killing Dan and Linda. 
However, evidence showed that Betty removed the phone from their bedroom after the attack to keep Dan, who was still alive, just bleeding out from calling the police. Um, As I said, like the way they found him, it looked like he was reaching for the phone. And so Betty herself admitted that she spoke to Dan after she shot him um, before she left the home and she just left him there for dead. And according to Betty, when she entered the room, Linda screamed, called the police. And that apparently startled Betty. And that's why she fired the shots, because she was startled. Um, Mm, I don't love that. I don't believe her. Um, It's not my job to believe her, but I'm saying I don't believe her. You purchased the gun a long time ago, right? Mm -hmm. Right around their wedding. You stole a key. You broke in. You shot them. Like, I just feel like... You know, I mean, at that point, what did she have to lose by lying? (laughs) Like one plus one equals two. Um, And so in addition, Betty's defense team argued that she had been a battered wife, claiming that she was driven over the edge by years of psychological, physical and mental abuse um, that I guess Dan dealt her. Um, The prosecution, however, painted Betty as a clear as day murderer who planned and schemed to kill Dan and Linda. Um, Dr. Park Dietz, um, who he was called by the prosecution to testify, and he testified that Betty had histrionic and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and so Betty, Betty's first trial ended with a hung jury when two of the jurors held out for manslaughter, citing lack of intent. The judge declared a mistrial. Betty Roderick was retried a year later with the same defense attorney and prosecutor. And so the second trial, like, as far as I understand it, no new evidence. It was just we're redoing the same thing over again. So Mm -hmm. nothing had changed. This time, the jury returned a verdict of two counts of second-degree murder. Betty ended up being being sentenced to two consecutive terms of 15 years to life, plus two years for illegal use of a firearm, which is apparently the maximum under the law. All I, all of that just makes sounds like she's spending life in prison, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's been incarcerated since the day that she committed the murder. So she um, like never was out on bail or anything like that. And so um, today she's currently incarcerated at the um, California Institution for Women. Um, And in 2010, the Board of Parole Hearings denied her first request for parole. Their reasoning was that they felt that she did not show remorse and didn't acknowledge that what she did was wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. And then she was denied parole two more times in 2011 and then 2017. And so she won't be eligible to... um, like try to get parole again until 2032 uh which is a long time That's away a huge, a huge yeah gap. yeah uh i don't know what the rules are for parole but that is the case of betty broderick and the murders of dan and linda broderick that was an interesting one <laughs> i feel like pretty um yeah i don't know <laughs> it's just obviously no one deserves that and that was a interesting way of handling that situation but in my mind i'm thinking if this divorce had never happened or if it happened in a more um 
respectful Am- amicable amicable yeah um like maybe if she had gotten some money and if they had come to an agreement with their children like if they just parted on terms of you know not having an affair involved mm-hmm. would this have happened and i don't think it would have yeah So, my Betty's name is Betty Newmar, and she, well, I, I won't give anything away, um, although I guess we're kind of giving it away, saying it's a Black Widow episode. Anyway, so Betty Johnson was born in 1931 in Ironton, Ohio, a small town that sits right near the West Virginia border. Her parents were Otis and Elizabeth Walden Johnson. Her father worked as a coal miner. I don't know what her mom did, but I assume she might have been a homemaker because it was 1931. I'm not sexist for thinking that, I hope. <laughs> um, so in 1949, she graduated from South Point High School, and a year after, she was married to Clarence Malone, a fellow classmate. They got married at the 10th Street Tabernacle in Ironton. Betty was just two days away from her 19th birthday. Her engagement photos depicted a beautiful, dark-haired woman with a bright, engaging smile. Did so you actually Clay- look at these pictures? Is no, that your description? I, that was, no, <laughs> I was it was like, somebody else's so nice, description. <laughs> no, I like reworded it, though, so it's not... <laughs> not plagiarizing? It's a I'm not plagiarizing. <laughs> I didn't copy and paste it. Okay. Um, but, yeah, the bright, engaging smile, I came up with that part. It said, like, she had a nice smile or something, but I, I embellished. Uh, so Clarence started to work at the C&O Railroad Company. They had a child, Gary, great name, uh, who was born March 13th in 1952. So it wasn't a secret that Betty wanted to get out of the small town Ohio. And even though they just had a child, her marriage to Clarence didn't last long and they soon parted ways. At some point during their marriage, Betty filed a domestic violence claim against Clarence saying he molested her. So that might have contributed to the the marriage not working out. Um, And after his marriage to Betty, Clarence did marry two more times. So uh, fast forwarding a bit here. So, in 1970, Clarence was shot in the back of the head. The murder took place outside of the auto shop owned by Clarence in a small town located in the southwest of Cleveland. Clarence's death was ruled a homicide. It was unclear why Clarence was killed. There was nothing reported missing from the auto shop, so they ruled out, you know, that it was a robbery. A classmate from high school said Clarence had a belligerent attitude. He was described as being difficult to get along with. So it was possible that Clarence got in a disagreement or just angered the wrong person. Not too sure what happened there. His brother, Robert Malone, would say that Clarence was always on edge uh, and he made some enemies in his auto shop business. Uh, Clarence was also a veteran of the Vietnam War. So... It was possible, it was, it was kind of alluded uh, from a statement in his brother that he maybe saw some, some things while he was there that changed his views on the world. Hmm. So, after her marriage to Clarence, Betty was wooed by James A. Flynn. So we don't know much about how they met or when exactly they got married, but they did have a daughter together named Peggy. So Betty would tell authorities that James died on a pier somewhere in new york whether that's new york city 
New York, like upstate in the farmlands. I don't really know, but apparently it happened sometime in the mid-1950s. Supposedly, she found him shot to death on the pier, and that was that. Um, But over time, the story uh, behind his death changed. She would say he died in a truck, like he froze to death inside of a truck, or he died on the pier, or had been shot, or who knows. Rule number one of doing sinister things, get your story straight. (laughs) Exactly. Also, like, how is there not more of an investigation? Mm -hmm. Was there a body anywhere? Like, (sighs) anyway, so (laughs) Peggy, Peggy, um, you know, as she grew up, believed that her mother was a good person who just was dealt a very bad hand. Um, so, and she was also like a child when this murder happened. So I don't think that she got the chance to really know her father or really have a good understanding of, of what happened there. But that's all we know about James Flynn. So moving on to husband number three. In the mid-1960s, Betty was living in Jacksonville, Florida, and Betty was working as a beautician. She met a man in the Navy named Richard Sills. Richard and his first wife had divorced, um, something he had in common with Betty. They'd both been through divorces, and they both had children. Richard and his first wife had four children together, so perhaps it was a connection for them to bond over. Richard and Betty got married and were living in a mobile home in Big Coppet Key, Florida. Does that sound familiar to you? No. <laughs> um, on April 18th of 1965, Betty and Richard got into an argument. Things were heated. Richard had been drinking. It was possible that Betty had been drinking as well. Um, apparently, she had kind of a drinking problem. And the argument ended when a shot rang through the night. Peggy, who was 11 years old at the time, was home. She had heard the fighting, heard the shot. Um, Turns out Richard had been shot by a 22 caliber pistol in the heart. So Mm. Betty told the police that Richard pulled out the gun and shot himself. And the death was ruled as a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So the police left the investigation up to the NCIS, the Naval Crimes Investigative Service, and they did not perform an autopsy, but the medical examiner said it was possible that Richard had been shot two times. So this is not typical of a suicide attempt. It is unlikely that someone would shoot themselves more than once, and it's very uncommon that we would see someone shoot themselves in the heart. Um, just based off of my knowledge between men and women, suicide attempts in men are generally more violent and have higher fatality rates. So more commonly in suicides in men, we would see them shoot themselves either in the mouth or in the head, not the torso area, because it's very possible that you would shoot yourself, you know, kind of miss some of the internal organs and be completely fine. So it's just very unusual um but the records for the case were destroyed after it was ruled a suicide and life life went on um so betty wasn't single for long after richard's death later that year betty met a man named harold gentry harold was in the army uh she appeared to have a thing for a man in uniform uh that because uh the other guy was in the Navy. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so they were married on January 19th of 1968. 
Harold's family was wary of Betty. At first, she told them she was a nurse and her first husband died of cancer. It turns out that Betty had a lot of stories and they were always changing. Um, So she was nice and enjoyable to be around at first, but then the family started to see a much different side of Betty. She became very cold to Harold, so much so that his family was picking up on her icy demeanor. Betty was verbally abusive towards Harold, and her mood could shift easily from being extremely kind, nice, to being cruel, especially if she was drinking. In 1986, Harold was found dead in his yard. He had been shot several times from behind, and someone just left, shot him and left, left his body there. By the time he was found, (laughs) we'll see. So by the time he, uh, yeah, I mean, Betty wasn't there, Natalie. She was in uh, Augusta. Oh, my bad. See, look at me accusing Betty of things. (laughs) Um, So by the time he was found the next day, his body had swollen to the point where he was almost unrecognizable. His brother, Al Gentry, said that Harold looked like he weighed 300 pounds. While the police were there completing their investigation, Betty had returned from a trip she had taken out of town. See? She walked up to Al, and the first thing she said was, I was in Augusta. I had nothing to do with this. Oh. Good. She said it. So it must must be true. So Um, do people... Is that a normal thing? Do people just swell up after they die? I'm not sure. It might have had something to do with the temperature outside. Oh. If it was hot, I would imagine. If it's in Florida. I don't want to swell. Okay, well. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Get put in a fridge or something. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, So, she did say that, which, you know, it's a little weird. Uh, Al commented in the, the documentary I watched. Um, I won't say the name now because it would give it away, but whatever. We already kind of gave it away. I'm trying to create an air of mystery. Um, so. <laughs> In the Black Widow episode, yes. Yes. So Al was said that, you know, she was really cold, that she was really emotionless. emotionless. And like we said, you know, there's no standard response to knowing that someone has died or was murdered. I think that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if someone was, like, very um, unresponsive, if they weren't crying just because they were in a state of shock. So that itself would not be surprising to me, but the fact that she said, I was in Augusta, I had nothing to do with this. Um, Al would say, like, if she walked up to him and was like, oh my God, what happened? This is so horrible, that he wouldn't have been suspicious of her at all. But this statement, you know, made him suspicious. Yeah, it didn't help. (laughs) From that day on, Al vowed to do whatever it took to find his brother's killer. He frequently visited the sheriff's office to check on the case and, you know, offer up any clues that he had uncovered, Um, sometimes even showing up several times a month to the police station. But the case quickly grew cold and no arrests were made. Betty collected about $20,000 in insurance money, sold the home, and collected the military benefits after Harold, that Harold got after he was killed. Um... So in 1985, tragedy struck again. Betty's son from her first marriage to Clarence, Gary, was found dead in his Ohio apartment. If you recall, his father passed away in 1970 after being shot in the head. And Gary was also found shot to death, but his death was ruled to be a suicide. 
Gary had a wife and children, but it was his mother who was listed as the beneficiary on Gary's life insurance policy. So she was the one who collected the money. That's messed up. Yes. I didn't have too much information about that. You know, it didn't say like, oh, she was the um, beneficiary and then she gave the money to the wife and children or whatever. So I imagine she just kept it. And yeah, that's crazy stuff. Um, So after Harold's death, um, Betty needed a change of scenery. She moved to Augusta, Georgia and opened a beauty shop. Betty integrated herself in the community by doing charity work. You know, she donated or helped raise money for churches and would donate and do all this stuff. So she seemed like a very active participant in the community. By now, she was going by B and had successfully managed to start over. People didn't know about the mysterious trail of deaths she seemed to leave behind. Mm hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> I scrolled too much. Um, one of Betty's customers thought his friend, John Numer, would really like Betty. So he encouraged him to, you know, oh, go go get a haircut from B. She's really awesome. You, you would think she's cute or whatever. Uh, but they clicked right away. And not long after they were married, Betty took out a life insurance policy on him, which I feel like, gosh, I feel like I can never get life insurance because I feel like I'm going to be murdered immediately after. <laughs> But, um, so it only makes sense because she's had such terrible luck up until this point, you know, that she might want to protect herself in the case of another tragedy. You know, that might explain why she just took out this life insurance policy. Um, so in October of 2007, surprisingly, John passed away. At this point, John had been pretty isolated from his family to the point where they weren't even aware that he passed away. Um, his son actually was reading the newspaper at work when he came across his obituary um and that's how they find found out um that john had died so their strained relationship really weighed heavy on john jr the son before meeting betty he had a really close relationship with his father and after john got married it was clear that john jr was no longer welcome at his father's home So his family was shocked. Even though John was reported to have died from natural causes, his death was listed as sepsis, ischemic bowel, and ileus. I-L-E-U-S. I was going to look that up, but I forgot. Um, It was a little unusual that there hadn't been more of an investigation, especially considering the symptoms are consistent with arsenic poisoning. John had been a pretty healthy person. I think he was... 76 at the time so he was a little bit older but you know um his son couldn't remember the last time he had a cold so he was in really good health you know it wasn't that he like had cancer or um something else he was in pretty good shape for for how old he was um so john jr reached out to betty about his father's body only to hear that his father had already been cremated John Jr. thought this was strange, um, as John Sr. had already purchased a burial plot. Um, He purchased a double plot when his first wife passed away and fully intended to be buried next to her when when he passed. And so here's my Catholic question. In the documentary, I think it was like, oh, he wouldn't have wanted to get cremated because he's Catholic. Yeah. Is there like a reason for that? 
um, because if Jesus comes again, how are you going to ascend to heaven if you're ashes? <laughs> that's logic. Oh, God wouldn't turn me back into a person. <laughs> um, that's part of it. But then also just like, um, just the idea of like not um, like defiling the body. Fair. Um, but for those reasons, yeah, it was a little bit unusual uh, since Betty kind of said like, oh, this is what John would have wanted. He want he wanted to be cremated. Um, it just kind of goes against everything that he had set up for himself. Um, also weird, the couple had declared bankruptcy a few years earlier after they accumulated more than $200,000 on 43 credit cards. Jeez, who was giving them more money? Who was like, giving them more credit cards? You, well, Wouldn't that's they get, what like, I mean. denied? Yeah, like, why? I, well, I don't know. More power to them. <laughs> <sighs> well, yeah, I guess they're never going to get it back after that. But um, John's family said that he was a very responsible man. So he had paid off his home, you know, paid off multiple, multiple cars, saved up for retirement. So it was weird that all of a sudden that, you know all this money like all of a sudden there was a change where he was terrible at managing his money um and the family also saw none of this money after he died the money he had saved up you know his home things like that so it's not likely that his retirement was around anymore it had probably gone up the window long before all that debt was communicated not communicated accumulated there we go so The case of Harold Gentry's death was finally reopened in 2008, 22 years after his murder. A new sheriff, Rick Burris, was elected to oversee the Stanley County in North Carolina. Um, So he decided to reopen the case, you know, figured out how to get enough evidence to do that. So Betty was arrested while she was gardening, which I feel like is a very older woman thing to have happen because she was like a, a granny at this time um she was led down the set that'd be like oh she's was arrested while baking cookies i don't know uh i thought that was interesting so she was led down the steps of her west augusta home into a police car betty was polite she cooperated with the police they even or they told her that some people from north carolina wanted to speak with her and she said sure and they didn't even handcuff her at this point um But finally, Betty was charged with hiring a hitman to kill Harold Gentry. A tip they received pointed to Betty's involvement. Allegedly, Betty had contacted a former former police officer and had also reached out to her neighbor about killing her husband in the months before his death. So it appeared the motive was to get his $20,000 insurance policy. Al said that Betty was always impeccably dressed and that she always had on nice jewelry, but the bright orange prison outfit was the prettiest outfit he had ever seen her wearing. Oh, and gosh. the steel shackles around her wrists were the best jewelry that that he'd ever seen her in. <laughs> Just the shade. Oh, I clever. love it. Yeah. I mean, she appeared to be responsible for the death of his brother. So mm-hmm. the news footage showed a little old lady looking rather frail in her prison jumpsuit. It's just a a strange sight to see. Um, So when they were filming during her arrest, she raised up her hands to block the camera from seeing her face. And in the background, you can hear um, a fellow inmate shouting, girl, you're going to be front page, front page news. 
Um, so <laughs> that was a quote. The grammar was just okay. bad. Okay. I was. I didn't want to do like an accent or anything. That was just. Sorry. What kind of accent Girl. would you have done? I don't know. <laughs> Girl, you gonna be front page news? Front page news. Maybe a southern accent. I. Girl, you gonna be front page news? I mean, it was in North Carolina. (laughs) Girl, you gonna be front page, front page news. Okay, that's that. Well, when they were like shouting it at her, it was like said more enthusiastically. But I'm not very enthusiastic (laughs) about that. Um, So her arrest prompted other family members of her potential victims to demand further investigations for the deaths of their loved ones. Michael Sills, the son of Richard Sills, didn't know much about how his father died until he was contacted after Betty's arrest. This prompted him to take another look at the police records, which there wasn't much. If you remember, they were destroyed. Um, But in fact, the the NCIS decided to take another look at this case. The case had been closed in Monroe County, Florida. They believed it was too old and would cost too much money to continue to investigate. Um, the county investigators had actually planned at some point to exhume Richard's body to perform an autopsy, um, and this would settle once and for all if Richard had, had been shot multiple times. However, it was determined that the statute of limitations had passed for this case. So Florida did set a time limit on the prosecution on certain categories of homicide, like involuntary manslaughter, but they did not have a time limit on premeditated murder. So perhaps they just thought they didn't have a strong enough case to prove that his death would fall into the category of first-degree murder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael believed that this was an excuse and brought up a great point. How are you supposed to know what kind of murder it was unless you investigate? So (laughs) Smart. (laughs) Yeah. Great, Michael. Great, great insight there. Um, NCIS was hopeful that they might be able to solve it, saying they had solved much older cases than this, but it doesn't appear that they ever... Uh, you know, found that information out. So uh, investigators in Georgia were contacted by the police in North Carolina. They were encouraged to re-examine the death of John Newmar. So when they investigated the home, they found latex gloves, Roundup, rat bait poison, a cylinder with unknown metal powder, and an empty five-pound bottle of carbon tetrachloride. Um, So the carbon tetrachloride prolonged exposure to it can cause a coma or even death um so a little suspicious that they found all these poisons around when it looked like the cause of john's death could have been related to a poison although why they didn't just like test his system before they cremated him i don't know um and it turns out his ashes couldn't be tested because of certain medications that he was taking. It would have just ca- caused a positive result for, it would have been consistent with what they were testing for in the poison. So unfortunately, they couldn't even do that. Um, but he also refused to give his family his ashes. Um, all they wanted was for him to be buried next to his first wife. And in the documentary that I was talking about called Black Widow Granny, um, I can give it away now, <laughs> they... <laughs> interviewed betty and she said that john was a perfect gentleman great husband you know but john jr that guy was not he had been married six times and when asked about his marriages john jr admitted that yeah he had some bad marriages but at least all of his exes were still alive Uh. and he said that that's what i was like typing i was like oh he went there oh like (laughs) these people are all sassy in this case (laughs) 
I know the shade. <laughs> right. It was so real. Um, so Betty continued to insist that she was innocent until she died in 2011 while waiting for trial. Betty Numer died of cancer at the age of 79 years old in a hospital in Louisiana. And Al was devastated that there would never be a proper investigation of his father's death. After she died, the case was left open, but it wasn't active. So again, this is why I think the NCIS never looked into it further. So Al didn't have answers about who actually killed his brother. And this is a... Well, it's interesting to me because clearly... Betty didn't do it, but someone else did that could still be out there. So I don't understand why they would stop the investigation. Yeah. Um, and he said, I just wanted justice and we're not going to get it. Sad. So that is the case. Although I guess she was never officially convicted. There's but she's lots been of... convicted in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> lots of shady business. Well, I... I don't know if she, if I suspect her for all of the deaths. I wish I had a little bit more information about the death of her son. I don't know if she was in like a different state when it happened, if she was nearby. I would want to know more about that. And it appears that the um, death of her first husband might be unrelated just because so much time had passed. But you never yeah. know. Um. It was an interesting one, though. Yeah. Betty's. <laughs> it reminded me of... Well, I was saying... It reminded me of Jill Coy. Yeah. Because she had lots of... I, although she had, like, 11 husbands that she Yeah. Killed, I, so. While you were talking, I looked her up because I wanted to know who came first. Um, there's a slight overlap, but I think um, possibly uh, your Betty... Be, or, yeah, your Betty became... Or came around first-ish. Yeah, but then the other, then Jill just blew her out of the water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of similarities as well, I do see thing. It appears that she might have had some antisocial personality kind of very much yeah. psychopath vibes here. It seemed very much that she was killing for money. Yeah. Yeah. And that she was good at kind of baiting people and reeling them in being super nice super sweet and then kind of turning once that went sour and i think she shares um or is consistent with other abusers where she would cut people off from their families um you know preventing them from being able to like get help if things started to look a little shady and also, it seems like that was a financial motive for her. If she was able to cut them off, then she could put herself as the beneficiary. Yeah. That's so deceptive. I just... Is, like, money worth that much? Like Not in my opinion, but I don't know. I don't have that much of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that in mind, like, is it worth, you know, putting a life insurance policy on Evan? <laughs> you know? Some days, I don't. I like in a lot of these things, it's just hard to wrap my head around. But I do try to like keep in mind that in a lot of these cases, these people are not. I don't want to say not well, but they're like functioning differently. They see the Um, world in in a different way. Yeah, but to me, it wouldn't be worth it because you're risking 
being in prison for the rest of your life. Exactly. Like Like the risk versus reward just doesn't like you get the electric chair for something like that. I mean, right. But look how long she was able to get away with it for. So Mm. that just, you know, encouraged her, I feel like, to to keep going. I definitely think that in these investigations, there just wasn't enough done. I think, you know, there were a lot of points where it could have been stopped. But maybe because she was, obviously, she wasn't a granny for all the cases, but um, Mm. probably just because of her demeanor, because she was able to appear, you know, nice and um, talkative, you know, donated to church and stuff. Don't trust anyone is what I've learned. Mm. I don't trust Evan. I'm not 100%. <laughs> I, don't, I don't trust anyone in my life. I, I think that you. out of all the people... Well, I'm like too scared of blood. I could never kill someone. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I'm a vegetarian. How messed up would that be? No, uh, <laughs> No, I feel like... Not that I'm, I don't trust Evan. But like your in friends and family yeah. are most likely to be the ones to kill you. So keep keep an eye out for our music is the track wasteland by joseph mcdade his patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below any mistakes are entirely our own so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the crisis text line by texting home to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.